We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. On today's episode, we talk to Edron Barnia about his work filming rock art around the world. This is Rock Art Podcast number seven. Hello out there in podcast land. This is your uh, host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, founder and president of the California Rock Art Foundation, who uh, sponsors this Rock Art Podcast, and we have with us uh, a world-class researcher. His name is Eran Barnia. He's a cinematographer. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, Eran. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. So uh, the reason I invited you is because of your uh, singular accomplishment in traveling the globe and uh, capturing images cinematography images of the rock art, specifically the petroglyphs of horned ungulates, large horned ungulates. And the reason I use this sophisticated terminology is because in different places around the world, they tend to feature what we what I call indexical animals as part of their repertoire. So I guess to kick it off, Eran, I'd like you to talk about... Uh, kind of what you do professionally and um, your expertise in the world of cinematography. Can we start it out that way? Well, I come from an um, art background, I'd say. I was born in Israel, studied architecture, came to the United States about 25 years ago to uh, work for George Lucas doing uh, visual effects for movies. So I've been doing that for almost 30 years. Wow. Um, also, about 10 years ago, I... Um, started to be interested in um, uh, documentary filmmaking, especially in the um, er, uh, subjects surrounding um, archaeology. What got you interested in that, in the archaeology and the, and the documentary side? Well, it's a combination. The documentary side comes from my dealing with the um, world of movies and as far as archaeology. You know, when you grow up in the Middle East, it's all around you. You can leave archaeology. Uh, everywhere you go, you can find stuff. So I've been interested in that for a long time, since my childhood, I think. Uh, this is a combination of uh, two of the things I love, you know, movies and archaeology. So you get to uh, sort of overlap and synthesize and do uh, two subjects simultaneously and use your expertise and sort of experience the uh, joy and wonder of archaeology, correct? Well, exactly. I mean, the ex expertise of archaeology, I learn from the people I interview. Lots of interesting people all over the world. So did you begin in Israel to do some work on this uh, subject? Is that how it all began? Well, I started to uh, film something in the desert of southern Israel and Sinai, which was a different subject. But during that filming, I was introduced to, to rock art. Actually, I was amazed by that because I've been traveling and visiting these places, you know, since I was a teenager and never seen them before. All of a sudden, I was interviewing uh, Professor Emmanuel Anati regarding a different research that he's doing in a desert. And he showed me all this rock art and they're everywhere. So, so who is Emmanuel Anati? 
Uh, well, he is, uh, he still is. Uh, he's a pioneer, I think, in the uh, field of rock art. He started in the, in the 50s looking at rock art in the Middle East, in Israel, in Saudi Arabia, um, and in Italy as well, where he lives. And I think he pioneered this research. Most uh, researchers before him didn't really look at rock art as far as archaeology. And uh, he has a lot of theories. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason I followed him because uh, he had a theory. Uh, he, he think he discovered the biblical Mount Sinai. Okay. So I was trying to follow that um, because he was trying to connect basically uh, rock art, which until I'd say 1970s, 80s, nobody really cared about in the Middle East. So, that, so it really was not a data set that they were interested in examining, correct? Not at all. Not, not at, at all. all. Um, you know, the archaeology mainly around Israel is focused on biblical archaeology. Everybody wants to find proof of King David and Jesus Christ. So, so tell me about the about the data set of rock art in Israel. So, where in Israel was the rock art that you and Emmanuel Anadi were studying? In the southern desert. In the southern uh, deserts. Yeah, it's all over the, the Negev Desert and the Sinai Peninsula, which is now part of Egypt. Okay. Um, but these things are all, all over the place. And they started in the uh, Neolithic mm-hmm. about 10,000 years ago. And um, the main production of petroglyphs was from about 8,000 years ago to about 4,000 years ago. And what is the subject matter in those petroglyphs from 8,000 years ago on up? What do we see in the imagery? Well, the interesting thing is that um, you can see subject matters that repeat themselves over and over, uh, all over the desert and throughout um, any period of time. You know, since the very early ones till the very late ones, they deal with the same subject matter. And uh, what you see mostly are animals. And the most prominent animal that you see there is the ibex, the mountain goat. And what is an ibex? Well, ibex is a wild mountain goat. It's probably the um, most impressive mammal that lives there in the desert. It's got enormous horns, doesn't it? Enormous, yeah, crescent-shaped horns. Very impressive And I guess it's one of those world-class animals that uh, some of these hunters like to kill and and mount those heads on the walls, right? Well, yeah, it's been a hunting animal for, uh, you know, since the beginning of uh, humankind. And until today, it's the best trophy you can get. It's an impressive animal. Because of that, this animal almost completely disappeared uh, in Asia and the Middle East. It's very rare now. And it's very protected. Yeah, but that, that, that image is, is something that's emblazoned on the rocks, isn't it? Yes, all over the place. And then I realized it's not only there. It's the same imagery that repeats itself beyond you know, the, the southern desert of Israel. When, when we see the image, on what kinds of rocks is this image portrayed? And how do they produce it? How is it preserved? Well, you know, like any other petroglyph, this um, it's it's carved in a rock, exposing the the outer patina of the rock, uh, make it brighter than the outside surface of the rock. Is it is it on a basalt, like a lava? Uh, basis? No, it's not basalt. It's more like a flint. Oh, it's more like a rocks. flint. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what, but I guess they do peck through that desert varnish and somehow the uh, light heart rock comes out and then it, it uh, preserves for thousands of years, correct? Exactly, exactly. And there are also some very ancient ones, you know, around 10,000 years or so, where the uh-huh. uh, desert varnish already came back to its original color. So you can barely see any difference between the pecking and the original surface. You can just see the drawing only by the depth of the rock. So the, the, so the desert varnish, that varnish is recreated over time. And so then the, the image itself becomes the same color as the background? Exactly. exactly. I see. And so how does that image, what, what exactly is in that image, the designs and the specifics? What are they portraying? Uh, we know that, the, that there's an ibex depicted, but what else is in that picture? And what, 
what do people hypothesize is the reason that they depicted the animal? Well, the first thing that you see is, uh, you know, hunting scenes, hunting ibex. And uh, that's why people didn't consider it to be much, because it looks like just uh, nomads uh, portraying their everyday life uh, hunting animals. First problem starts when you look at when these were produced. And the time when these were produced, the nomads of the desert were not hunter-gatherers anymore. They were... uh, Pastoral people, they had herds. Uh, their diet was based on their herds, not on hunting. So that was not their everyday life. If it was depicting real life hunting, it must have been some sort of a ceremonial hunting or something like that, but something special. It's not an everyday activity. So the people who crafted the most ancient images were not hunter-gatherers or foragers. They were horticulturalists, correct? They were sort of incipient nomads. Anyways, they were... Correct. Who- I mean, yeah. people argue that this these themes started during the Paleolithic when they were uh-huh. um, okay. hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see similar things in the um, caves of Europe. You see animals and hunting scenes, and uh, we don't know what, it, what they mean, but um, according to the research of um, von Petzinger, the Canadian scientists who investigated the caves of Europe of the Ice Age, uh, she found that there are also symbols drawn there with the animals. And not just um, symbols like an arbitrary or uh, um, any number of symbols, but there's a finite number of symbols. There's, I think, 32 symbols all over, uh, meaning they use some sort of symbolic language there to describe what they, whatever they wanted to describe. Uh, so there's some sort of importance to these pecking, some message they wanted to portray beyond just, oh, I killed this big trophy. That's It's not about it. It's about something else. And then you start looking at other designs that are picked next to the ibex or whatever angulated animal it is, and you find more stuff. The uh, earliest images of the ibex on the rock in uh, the Negev, in, in the southern deserts of Israel, do they ever show uh, other figures or other writing or anything else in association with those images? Well, they're not writing yet because they're writing all the, the alphabet, although invented there in Sinai. Mm-hmm. It was invented uh, about, uh, 17, about 17, 1700 B.C. Okay. From then... Once there's alphabet, you can see alphabet next to the ibex, but that's only um, 3,000 years ago. 8,000 years ago, there's no alphabet. So you don't see that. You see sign language. And and what do you do? You have figures that are associated with the ibex, and if they are, are that you said they're actively hunting, are they using uh, ancient weaponry or more recent? Sometimes they're hunting. They could be hunting. Sometimes they're doing something else. They could be just standing next to the ibex or under it or above it, uh, raising their hands, for example. Uh Um, And a stick figure raising the hands up has a cultic context. Uh, We don't know if it's a person. Yeah. We don't know if it's a person, uh, a shaman, a priest, or a deity. But it has cultic contexts of adoration, prayer, Something like that. I see. So um, this was the first data set that you ran into that had this particular set of imagery on it. So we see ibexes, the animal ceremonialism. You've got individuals there that are, they believe are either hunting or they're in some f- sort of adorant posture where their arms are either uh, probably a str- either outwards or upwards. Are they mostly upwards or are they outwards? Upwards. I think uh, outwards is a different symbol. I think uh, when it's stretching okay. outwards, also the uh, the fingers are emphasized. And I think this is a different ah. symbol. But hands, okay. up, uh, hands up is definitely um, adoration. It could be sometimes only the right hand is up and ah. the left is down. Interesting. There is a development like that that recently, uh, later on became a symbol of the deity in Mesopotamia. So you see an evolution in the symbols over the thousands of years that they were produced? 
it changes oh, yeah. from one to the next? Oh, yeah. That's one of the interesting things that I did is uh, checking the evolution of the symbolism over time and how it became from simple descriptions of the nomads to a more complex description in the civilized world with the same themes or motifs um, I described. See. And you can see the evolution of a deity, for example, from the simple rock art to how it's described in Mesopotamians' uh, reliefs and statues. So is is this is this specifically on the the Negev or southern desert of Israel rock art that you see this change? That's uh, where I started, and then I realized it's yeah. all over the Middle yeah. East. Okay, okay, I think I understand. Well, we're we're almost ready ready for this segment to uh, to end, but I I want to I want to put some closure on this, and maybe you can reflect on what you learned just from the Negev at seed to begin this research. We'll move ahead in the next segment to sort of embellish this and continue working on the research that Aaron Barnia has done in Israel and around the world. Thanks. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast number seven. We're in the second phase of our interaction with Aaron Barnia, and he's going to be talking about his uh, adventures throughout the world, capturing the imagery of the longhorned, Ardeodactyls, the hooved animals that are depicted on rocks. Eran, take it away. Where did you uh, go after you did your studies in Israel? Well, I went to several places. Uh, first, I realized that uh, what I'm seeing in Israel does not exist only there, but it's all over the place. What made you uh, recognize that, that, that the uh, imagery can be found elsewhere? How did you learn that? How did you discover that? Well, first, I, uh, I started to interview an expert in Israel, um, Dr. Uzi of Nair. He um, uh, showed me imagery from around the world and um, gave me the first hints what to look for. And then the Internet's been a very good resource to research and see where things are. When you talked to your Israeli researcher and did your Internet research, where in the world do we find uh, depictions of these long-horned, hooved animals? We're everywhere, basically. Okay. Everywhere where people lived. Okay. All, uh, all continents. Um, okay. Uh, I was in uh, South Africa, mm-hmm. um, seen it there, and then uh, decided that um, I want to dedicate the research to the Northern Hemisphere. So um, went to visit... Um, well, there are too many places, so I had to pick my battles. Uh, for some areas, either I could not get into or it was too complicated, so I hired local cinematographers to uh, shoot some footage for me and interview experts, uh, like in uh, Iran, Iran, 
Mm-hmm. Nice footage from there, uh, from Tajikistan. Um, Where is Tajikistan? Walk- it's uh, well, Central Europe. It's the Wakhan Valley. It's um, a corridor um, along the Silk Road. The okay. Silk Road. Um, so we have many so caravans Tajikistan. Where else? Um, the Himalayas in Kashmir, where uh, Dr. Lunroth is working, and um, I sent I sent a cinematographer together with him to climb the Himalayas and get some footage from there. Mm-hmm. I went myself to Mongolia to the Altai Mountains. Uh, inter- interviewed a couple of uh, uh, researchers over there, um, and then the American Great Basin, mainly California. And who'd you interview um, there? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> called Professor Alan Garfield. Can. can you imagine? What a concept. So <laughs> let's, let's go sorry. through these various places that you, you gave us this laundry list. Which one you want to talk about first? How about South Africa? Do you have a, a little bit of tidbits you can tell us about South Africa, about the subject matter? Yeah, well, South Africa is a little different than the other parts that I visited because it's in the southern uh, hemisphere. And um, all those in the northern hemisphere have something in common. Uh, we can talk about it and what later. what is that? Uh, well, they, they are related to the uh, constellations of, uh, you know, the stars in the night sky. Hmm. Um, and how did you learn that? Well... That's a different story then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I jumped. I'm so sorry. Please. <laughs> Which one do you want to do ba- ba- before the uh, yeah, constellations or South Africa? Constellations. Tell us about constellations. constellations. Okay. Well, we can see that one main trope or motif in the uh, rock art is the hunting scenes. And as I mentioned before, it seems like it's not much uh, just hunting, but... As you look closely into it, it is not just hunting scene. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a representation of some mythology, some mythic hero, some uh, mythical event. And um, the components of this composition is mainly a hunter, mm-hmm. um, at least one or two hunters sometimes with a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. They're accompanied by dogs. They have hunting yes. dogs. Yes. And they're hunting uh, an animal, mostly angulated animal. It could be a horse, but mostly it'll be an ibex. If not, it'll be a, a sheep, a cow, uh, a deer, something like that. Some sort of long-horned um, animal, correct? Yeah. And the depiction is the same. It follows the same standard. It's a standardized uh, symbol. Always... Um, the the animal the prey is bigger than the hunter and the dog much bigger oh uh, its tail is always up tail is always which is up. very interesting uh-huh and it never dies so it's never a dead animal they're always vital and lively and abundant and jumping and and active always except one one petroglyphs in uh in the coast so you know yeah but it is indeed specific one, but to see dead animals. Very, right? yeah. They're always alive. Interesting. Uh, so there's some standard here that, uh, that has symbolism in it that everybody followed. So so most of your work has been in the Northern Hemisphere rather than the Southern Hemisphere. So the first yes. place you went was South Africa. Your next yes. uh, research was where? Uh, well, mainly Mongolia, I'd say, Mongolia. and uh, a lot of information from Iran, Tajikistan, and uh, and um, the Himalayas. So, tell me if the if the landform or the context of how these images are crafted is the rock canvas the same or is it different? I'd say they're the canvas itself. The what's important about it is that it has to be near some sort of a sacred ground. Okay. Not just anywhere. And the rock itself has to be of the right material that you can peck on it and expose the patina. I think that's um, the necessary requirement. I didn't think there there's any specific uh, significance for the orientation or anything like that. I think um, the symbols on the rock are organized according to the 
a surface to the topology of the rock itself. So when you say that the location of this imagery, no matter where it is in the Northern Hemisphere, it always seems to be associated with sacred ground. What uh, evidence, what, what either ethnographic or historical evidence do we have for that uh, assertion? Well, depends if you're talking about America or the old world. Okay. Uh, in the old world, is uh, uh, we have a problem that the people that manufacture these petroglyphs are gone. We don't even know who they are. So there's no ethnographic, barely any ethnographic uh, record. But uh, these guys also built some structures, very primitive, but they did mm-hmm. mainly... Uh, lines of rocks or rock circles or kerns or standing stones something like that so they had like uh, little shrines yeah are those are those shrines found uh, originally in israel well again like the petroglyphs it's something that people really didn't look at okay and you know it's piles pile of rocks uh, half a meter tall it's nothing Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're looking for like amazing, amazing architectural structures, you don't even look at these things. And this guy that I interviewed, Professor Uziofner, who's looking at these in the Negev Desert, he's just walking the desert and finding these, and he's found hundreds of them, hundreds, just there. And then I see that uh, there are occasionally people find them, uh, maybe more impressive ones, but all over the, the deserts in Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and they're all over in Mongolia as well. You can see uh, um, piles of stones or standing stones, what they call deer stones, uh, which are definitely uh, cultic structures. And they're always the petroglyphs associated somehow with this environment. Now, sometimes uh, you can see, for example, footprints, footprints on petroglyphs next to the animals. And footprints, okay. those indicate uh, sacred ground. There oh. are temples that have these two. So you can see the correlation of the sacred ground with the footprint. So are they, are they human footprints or animal footprints or both? Well, in the old world, it's a uh, human in America, there are lots of animal footprints. Who knows what that means? But human footprints are, are characteristic of this holy ground and this sacred nature of those yes. images. Yes. Interesting. And that particular tradition continues, uh, and you see that in uh, certain religious associations? Well, you can see that, um, for example... Um, taking off your shoes, your shoes when you get into a holy ground, right? Like ah. the Hindus and Muslims do that, mm-hmm. taking off their shoes. Uh, you know, you can see in the Bible when. Yeah, when they when 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 they um, was it was it Moses who uh, yeah in the, in the Old Testament where um, yeah exactly someone says, so God uh, tells him take off your shoes because this off ground your shoes, is uh, holy. holy ground, right? Exactly. I've never thought exactly. about that. Yeah. Yeah, you see that. And you can see the standing stones, you can see that in the Bible as well, as the early formation of religion. Uh, when Jacob erects a standing stone mm-hmm. and then slips by it, and he sees the angles come up and down from heaven on it. Through yeah, that's it. right. Almost like a so ladder. It's the same correct. thing. Yeah. It's the ladder. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you see those all over the desert, those erected stones. And in Mongolia as well, throughout Asia. So I think that one of the things is with these, uh, with this posture of, of holy hands or erect hands that are upwards thrust and the upward thrusting of the stones, at least for my study, and I'm sure from yours as well, it appears to be some sort of a symbolism or a metaphor connecting the celestial world to the terrestrial. In other words, from the divine, the deities, the gods and goddesses of the heavens to the more mundane path of humankind on the landscape. Yes, exactly. And it has to do also with the worship of ancestors. Yes, ancestors. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, that's, that seems to be uh, so centrally important uh, throughout the world, certainly with native or indigenous people, that 
uh, remember the ancestors, worship the ancestors, and in fact, use the ancestors as they pass sometimes as intermediaries or liaisons between ourselves and the deities. Am I correct? Exactly. Exactly. And that happens the same thing in Asia and the Middle East. You know, they were erecting these stones, whether it's the deities or the ancestors, probably many times for the ancestors, they were pouring some sort of either water or wine or something on their rock. A libation then, of some sort, an offering. Libation. And, and then um, they would um, sacrifice an animal and they were sitting down and eat it together with the ancestors. Right, right. And then so, make their prayers. So That's it was, the basic a, it, ceremony. It was a means of connecting to the supernatural. And exactly. And these weren't necessary. These weren't necessary uh, priests. So these were commoners, weren't they in some ways? Oh, everybody, everybody did okay. that. You didn't have okay. to have a mediator. You did it yourself. And part of the ceremony was hunting the animal. You hunted oh. the animal and then you sacrificed it to the ancestors or the deities and, and consume it to, to consume it together with them. And so the hunting is a phase in a cultic process, basically, which later became, um, you know, in every religion, there was a sacrifice, basically, as part of the right, ceremony. Right, the central sacrifice. The in, in, in Judaism and in Catholicism, we still to this very day have that, you know, we, we worship a cross with the sacrifice of Christ on it. We also ingest a um, wafer, that is the body and blood of and soul of our deity, which is Christ, and that's a, a, considered a sacrifice. And so, exactly, and the uh, correlation between day, Christ. The, yeah, please, go ahead. Yeah, Christ is described as the Lamb of God. So here you go. That's the that's the pray basically the sacrifice pray that you connect to the uh, early stages of um, cultic activity or religion, if you want to call it like that, to uh, Christianity. So it is it isn't coincidence that we look at a sheep or a lamb, and we call. Jesus, the Lamb of God, and what we're looking at here on, under your research is this this artiodactyl, this hooved animal that has horns and is available all over the all over the world to study and worship. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. Uh, one no. is the evolution of the other. Okay, well that's that's about all we have time for the second uh, second part of our discussion. But I think in the, in the in the last uh, part of our discussion, I'd like to get into the, the nitty-gritty and the, um, the reflections and the discoveries you've made about the evolution and similarities and patterns of the uh, religious worship and veneration, the cultic elements that you found throughout the world. See you on the other side. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, this is the Rock Art Podcast Number seven in the third segment, the final, final piece, we've got Aran Barnia, the world-class cinematographer who's been studying the animals that are ungulates, that have hooves, that have big, long horns, and he's been all over the world doing so. He's a cinematographer, and we're going to be uh, discussing the symbolism for this and bring it full circle back into the United States and talk about COSO. Um, Aran, if you could maybe begin to reflect on maybe what you've discovered and what you've uncovered with your worldwide studies on the horned ungulates depicted on the rocks for the last 10,000 odd years. <laughs> um, well, yeah, just, uh, in, just in, in, 30 sec- in, 30, in 30 seconds, if you could please just give me the, the you know, the bottom line. <laughs> 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 
Well, in 30 seconds, I discovered that uh, the rock art um, all over the world is expressing pretty much the same thing, which is in, um, uh, some sort of a mythology, a, um, a very ancient mythology that was universal and is very similar um, all over the uh, Northern Hemisphere. And the evolution of this um, is what we see today is uh, modern religions. This is the bottom line. And how did we get from looking at uh, sheep and goats and, and uh, wild animals and sacrifice to modern religion? How does that, what does it have to do with anything else? Well, this is a, uh, you have to study it step by step. Um, it's not a direct connection. It, does a lot of twists and turns um, throughout the uh, the evolution, but uh, essentially, the um, if you look at every ceremony formed now in the uh, Judeo-Christian world, uh, it is basically a prayer that commemorates some sort of a sacrifice. Um, the Christian prayer is based on the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, the Jewish prayer today uh, is a replacement for um, uh, the sacrifice that they did um, in the temple. After the temple, the Jewish temple was destroyed, they replaced the, sacrifi uh, the sacrificing animals by prayer. So it's basically the same thing. It is If you go one step backwards um, and you look at these societies that were... Um, sacrificing animals, they were commemorating a hunt, basically. So initially there were hunting societies that they were hunting the animal, slaughtering it, sacrificing it to the gods and praying. The later stage was to eliminate the hunting and then you remain only with sacrifice and prayer. And the stage we are at is we just have the prayer that commemorates the previous two stages, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It makes a lot of sense. So in my own work, of course, in the Coso range of Eastern California in the Western Mojave Desert, which has the greatest concentration of rock images in the entire Western Hemisphere, what they seem to be obsessed with, which is no surprise, is bighorn sheep. They believe that between 25 and 50% of the inventory of 100,000 images in about, about 100 square miles, we have between 25 and 50,000 depictions of bighorn sheep. Now, you mentioned that the depictions of these animals are always lively and alive. And that's, that's interesting because that's something that I've talked about and reflected upon. And that is not a, uh, that's not always a common interpretation. One of my uh, colleagues believe that these are spirit animals and they're actually, uh, he, would, he, would, he would say they're, de they're dead <laughs> and that uh, they're being depicted on the rocks in some sort, I, I don't know if it's veneration or whatever, but I, um, I have to disagree because it appears to me when you see this abundance of depictions of animals and their mobility and their their liveliness and the, the uh, action that seems to be captured with them is an indication that they, in fact, are meant to communicate life and not death. Do you find that all over the world? Is that the way it is depicted or no? Well, the interesting thing is that this is not the only thing that is similar between what we see in America and the old world. If you look at the American rock art only, you can... I guess I can guess whether they're dead or alive or what, but if you compare it to what you see in the old world, you can yes. see also that the same parameters work here uh, in California or in the Great Basin. The okay. animal is not only alive, but it's always bigger than the, um, the hunter, and the tail is always up. It's not just alive, but its tail is up. And that is very significant. Right. I guess we can riff on the tail for a few moments. Why don't you uh, open it up and then you and I can collaborate on exp uh, sort of talking about this tail posture. Uh, do you want to start? 
Well, yeah, I can. I heard about that uh, from researchers in the old world, and then you told me exactly the same thing about here in California. And what I heard about, you know, the Asian uh, petroglyphs of the Peel Up is that they mean that it's a um, symbol of fertility. It's a symbol of fertility. Fertility. These animals are always with their tail down in nature. Their tail is up only when they're mating. In the mating season. So what we've what what we what we've seen, of course, uh, just you know, piggybacking on that on that statement is that that's been a, a a question that appeared in the literature for quite some time in America about the tail posture. It was noticed that the tail was either horizontal to the ground or upwards towards the sky, and as you're well aware, and as you just stated, on these animals, on these um, ungulates, the tail is nicely tucked between their their backside. And in fact, it's not something that one even would illustrate because it's not a it's not a prominent feature of this elegant, impressive, and magnificent animal. Why would you why would you even show the tail to begin with, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Unless it's a significant symbol of something. Right. So what, what I learned, which took me a hell of a long time to find out, was that the animals, the big horn sheep and domestic sheep for that matter, um, only have their tail up is when a ewe, when a female sheep is in estrus and wants to show that they're open for reproduction. And the terminology of the uh, wildlife biologists call it flagging. And so the tail posture, when it's up, means means in a in a system I would I call it reproductive symbolism. It means that uh, life is coming, uh, reproduction is coming, uh, the renewal of sort of the supernatural energy of the cosmos is allowing for this uh, magical time where we can uh, reproduce and and renew, uh, renew us and create life, correct? Correct. On a personal level and yes. on earth level. So, which so means explain that. Explain rain. That. It brings fertility to people and it means rain as well. Fertility for, for the for the year. Right. And so what I found cosmologically, if you can bring it back to the American plane or the Great Basin plane, and in an article that I had in uh, the Cambridge Archaeological Journal on reproductive symbolism, and then elsewhere talking about the symbolism, what's interesting is this: these Uto-Aztecan people, these uh, Great Basin people, they would be called the Paiute of the Shoshone, as well as those even into Mesoamerica, who are Uto-Aztecan speakers, speakers of a language related to this, one of the largest linguistic groups in all of uh, all of the Americas, I understand, is that they had a layered world. They had a stratified world. Is that correct? Worldwide, that's a very common paradigm, isn't it, uh, Eran? Yes, although this you learn mainly from, I guess, here from anthropology. Right. And in the old world from written records that yes. describe their um, heaven and earth and all that. Right. Uh, so there's a difference, but it is layered. So, so it is a layered universe. Okay. So the reason I bring this up and the reason this is something that is, that appears to be significant to me is that this, uh, this uppermost level or this higher celestial level is the, is the level of the mountaintops. And it's also associated with the color white. Why is it white? Well, it's white because clouds are white. It's, it's white because snow is white. It's white because that's where the rain comes from. It's white because of the tail patch, the white tail patch of the bighorn sheep. And also the kind of, of uh, avian creature that is considered most sacred or most powerful or most religiously persuasive in the uppermost realm is the eagle. And the eagle has this white uh, underbelly and, and white tail feathers that, of course, were used 
extensively throughout the Americas, and certainly in the Great Basin as well, as a symbol of power, the eagle feathers and uh, the bighorn sheep. So what does this all mean, Iran? What about the sky? What about the, the celestial kingdom, and how does that relate back to this imagery? Well, to make a long story short, um, the imagery in the old world um, of the dog attacking the animal became later in Mesopotamia um, a lion attacking a bull. It's the same imagery and uh, means the same thing. Uh, this is according to a research from the 1960s by a, a German uh, mathematician, archaeologist. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he said, in order for us to understand the symbol, the symbol of the dog chasing an ibex, we have to see where, where it evolved. And it, it, it evolved to a lion attacking a bull, which is a myth that we can understand. And what it is, it's all about um, a resurrecting god, a god that dies and resurrects, where the bull... Uh, represents the um, constellation of Taurus, okay. and the lion is the constellation of Theo. And um, the constellation of Taurus, basically, they were measuring when the equinox occurs according to that constellation. Basically, it's the Pleiades, the Pleiades that became part of uh, Taurus, but the Pleiades mm -hmm. were the main constellations that these ancient people looked at to determine uh, the fall and spring equinoxes according to their helical rising. And so these are these are northern constellations of the northern hemisphere, correct? These are uh, uh, constellations of the northern hemisphere, uh, which um, are mainly the, the most visible constellations in the sky that you can see at very specific times of the year. Uh, and this is the Pleiades, or Taurus, the bull, uh, mm -hmm. Orion, the hunter, and mm -hmm. uh, Sirius, the dog. And these are exactly the same characters that we see on the rocks. And then those, those, those particular constellations are significant for all of these various cultures throughout the world that also depict these same animals on the rocks, correct? Exactly. So it seems like uh, the symbols were exactly the same. And if uh, you look at um, the anthropology record of the Great Basin, a lot of tribes here believe that the bighorn sheep are actually the belt of uh, Orion's belt. Absolutely. That's that the, the uh, Kumeyaay and the uh, Great Basin groups, the Chemawevi, they call it the uh, hunter and the bighorn sheep. They they again consistently identify that, and I presume that goes along with your same uh, suggestion or interpretation in terms of the model of understanding the cosmological realm and how this all works out for people all over the world. It's the same mythology of uh, it's the same mythology of. Uh... A hunter that goes to hunt an animal and pursue the hunt until they go in the sky. And uh, they show up in the sky. When, when they show up in the sky, the rain comes, and then they die, and then they come back so, to life again. So, all, so this entire cosmological nexus, the package is about death, it's about life, it's about resurrection, it's about sacrifice, it's about the ancestors, it's about prayer. And it all interfingers with both the cosmos and the terrestrial world in terms of the rituals of people for the last 10,000 years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's what that's, people that, were interested in. Yeah. And I guess they they're are. still interested in enough to uh, go to church and still uh, worship a God that uh, appears to help us and renew our life. And in the spring, we, we still want to see things that grow and renew. And uh, yes. we hope every day and pray that, that the sun comes up and, we, and that God gives us another day. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, because, if he, because if he doesn't, think, uh... we're dead. <laughs> well, I think that that winds us up. Aaron, I can't believe this went so fast and you uh, took us we're around the already. world. Yeah, we're done. We're in, in the final moments. 
Uh, you have a final. So much uh, to talk about. We have <laughs> so lots to talk about to talk and just began to scratch the surface. Thank you ever so much for coming on this show and sharing your insights and wisdom worldwide on the uh, horned, the extraordinarily horned animals and the petroglyphs, the rock drawings throughout the Northern Hemisphere. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Pro.